Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles, your copy of God's Word, or if you do not have one, there should be one in the pew in front of you this morning. You want to open it up to see that these things are truly the Word of God given to you in Holy Scripture as we work our way through the book of Acts, beginning in chapter 1, this morning, starting in verse 12. When they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers The company of persons was all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he is numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem that the field was called in their own language Akeldama, which is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, you may be seated. There is a race in our culture to make everything as instantaneous as possible. No longer do you have to wait days and days to receive something that you have ordered. Now, at the very least, you get it in two days or perhaps even overnight. And now the push with Amazon and other retailers is to get it to you in just a few short hours. What is true of our packages and our delivery is also true of our entertainment. You remember, perhaps, you've been alive for a good while, a number of years, you might have remembered as a kid that you would have to wait until Wednesday at 8 p.m. to watch your favorite show or your favorite sitcom, or when your mom or dad could drive you to the movie theater to Watch that latest blockbuster movie that you had been waiting for all summer. Now we do not have to wait, do we? No, the shows and the movies, they wait for you. They're always there, always ready, always available. You can watch them whenever you want to watch them. Recently, I was talking with a young man who is a manager at a Chick-fil-A, and he was telling me of the challenges of this last year. The the worker shortage, the higher demand for fast food and no dine-in, which created longer lines and longer waits. 
at the drive-thru. And apparently, according to this young man, some people get pretty ugly when they don't get their chicken nuggets and waffle fries right away. Because they want it now. They want it right now. All of these things are true as a culture because we do not want to wait for anything. Patience is no longer seen as a virtue. Rather, it is a problem. It means I'm not getting what I want when I want it. It obviously breeds discontentment and self-centeredness and another host of sins. And so we as culture have many faults, but our lack of patience and disdain of waiting is surely a glaring one. And yet, what do we read when we come to Acts chapter 1? We see that the disciples and the apostles are waiting. In fact, they are told specifically in verse 4 that they are not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Again, in verse 6, the disciples ask, Lord, will you at this time, meaning now, will you now restore the kingdom? And Jesus essentially says to them, no, not now. You will have to wait. And in fact, he says, you will receive power. Again, implying that you won't receive it now, but you will. You have to wait for the Holy Spirit. And we might read this and think, why? Why all of this waiting? Wouldn't it be much better as Jesus ascended that the Spirit would descend immediately, right then, so that they could go about the work? Well, we need to be reminded again and again, don't we, that our timing is not God's timing. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts, higher than our thoughts. And God does not and need not work on our timetable. And praise God for that. And oftentimes, what we experience is what I like to call divine delays. But they are purposeful and full of lessons for us if we are patient enough to learn them. And indeed, what we see in this passage this morning is that the Apostles, soon-to-be apostles, are experiencing one of these divine delays, waiting, unbeknownst to them. They'll have to wait for 10 days after the ascension for Pentecost to take place and the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. 10 whole days, 10 Amazon package delivery days, which is a long time by our standards. We see them waiting yet waiting with purpose. And we see them establishing practices and patterns that will suit them well for when the ministry actually begins and they are sent out. And so we see that this morning in three points, waiting and uniting, waiting and praying, and then waiting and replacing. First, waiting and uniting. Luke tells us that after the ascension the disciples returned to Jerusalem, returning from the Mount of Olivets, and they returned to the upper room, the place, no doubt, that they were staying while in Jerusalem. It was also the place of the Last Supper that we know so well. And Luke gives us the list of the disciples. It's the same men that were chosen by Jesus several years before. These men that were 
taught and discipled, that followed Jesus, that were witnesses of his life and of his teaching. And it says something very interesting as they return to this upper room in verse 14, that they were all in one accord. It demonstrates one of the main purposes of waiting the Lord would have for us. They were to wait so as to understand that they needed unity. They needed accordance with one another. And that unity wasn't just a a kumbaya. It's not just a fraternity. No, they needed unity. They needed oneness in the body of Christ. Because this truly is one of the greatest gifts, one of the precious gifts of God given to us as his people. It's something that should not be undervalued. It truly is a a rare and precious jewel. You think of Psalm 133, where the psalmist says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Because when it's not there, it's miserable, isn't it? When there's fighting, where there's bickering, where there's division, it's exhausting and draining. That is true in any relationship, but it's especially true in the church. That's why it's so important. And we must understand this, that we shouldn't just think of our salvation. Oftentimes, as we do as westernized Christians, we think of our salvation in a, in a private and an individual way. And yes, where we are to have a personal relationship with the Lord, a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is absolute, but we must understand that our faith never stands alone. In fact, it cannot stand alone. You are saved, you are adopted into a family. That is the very nature of adoption, isn't it? And that family is the body of Christ, the body of believers, which is the church. Early church fathers would even go as far to say that you cannot have God as your father without having the church as your mother. And you might say, whoa, whoa, pastor, that sounds very Roman Catholic. But what I think they are saying is that just like a child that is born would need the nurture of their mother, so we, as a child of God, need the nurture of the church in order for our faith to survive, our faith in in God to to not only survive, but to to thrive. Now, are there exceptions to that rule? Probably, but I guarantee you're not one of them. We need the church, don't we? And we cannot just do our own thing. We cannot just be lone ranger Christians that are just kind of out there just doing our own little private faith. No, we need one another. And that's what we see in this passage is that the disciples were not to just scatter as the Lord ascends. They weren't just to to go off to the four corners of the earth and start their own individual private ministries. No, there was the need for accord. There was the need for unity. And that is true today. And praise God that that is true in this church. I see unity amongst us. Are there minor differences and and strife at times? Sure, of course. Wherever there is a group of people, you have that. 
but in a world of marked division. Praise God that you all relatively like each other. And I like you, and, and I think you like me, at least most of the time. As days like this, we get to enjoy that unity, that, that communion with one another, the communion with the Lord Jesus Christ in a place of worship like this, and to come to the table, to be invited to the table, to, to come and commune with Christ and with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and then, then to go out on the lawn and to enjoy fellowship and to enjoy beautiful fall weather. Praise God for those blessings. Praise God for that unity. That's something that we ought to fight for. That's why we take vows, protect the, the peace and the purity, really to protect the unity of the church so that there would not be divisions. And so when there are divisions amongst us, we're commanded to, to go and make them right. Jesus even says, forget your offering. Go and be reconciled to your brother or sister in Christ. We need to be unified. And that is one of the greatest unities that we can have in this world. And therefore, we can be brown-headed or blonde-headed or this weird red-headed type people and yet have unity in Christ, because that is the very best unity that this world can afford, because it's not from this world, it's from the Holy Spirit, it's from the Lord Jesus Christ. If the church does not have unity, its ministry and mission will surely be severely hampered. And so Jesus had the apostles to wait so that they could be in one accord, so that they could enjoy the unity, and the fellowship of one another. Well, second, what fuels unity in the church? Well, it's very clear. It's prayer, and that's what we see them doing. Second, we see waiting and praying. It says in verse 14, they were with one accord devoting themselves to prayer. Notice that. It was a devotion to prayer. It was a persistence in prayer. It wasn't just a, a single little short prayer. No, this is what they were doing as they were waiting. They were giving themselves over to prayer. And I think this is perhaps the, the number one reason why God allows divine delays in our life, because it causes us to pray. It causes us to be dependent upon the Lord, something that we should be doing all of the time, right? But it's oftentimes when we bump up to those walls, sometimes those brick walls, sometimes those unmovable walls, and it's in those moments we think, why, why is this wall here? We quickly are reminded, oh yeah, because it's not by my work or by my power that I'll accomplish these things. It's only by Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and and so we go back to the Lord and we say, first and foremost, Lord, forgive me for my own dependency, depending upon myself. Make me much more dependent upon you. And prayer is the single greatest way individually and as a church we demonstrate and we are reminded that we are a branch and that we are not the vine. Right? Jesus says, I am the vine. Without me, you can do 
nothing. So we receive everything. We receive it only by him. And so you are experiencing at this time some divine delays. Perhaps you might even call them divine frustrations in your life. I think it's calling you, driving you to your knees in prayer. And that is always a good thing. Use this time to to wait and to pray. And notice it wasn't just the apostles. It wasn't just the disciples. It wasn't just the 11 who were praying. It says that they were together with the women. We know these women probably to be Joanna and Susanna and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, Mary the mother of James and even says one of the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, along with Jesus' brothers. It would be Jesus' half-brothers, his biological half-brothers. It was these that were joining together in prayer. And I think what you see here is that prayer is the, the great equalizer, that all of us come on level ground to the Lord in prayer. Prayers are not more acceptable because of who you are or who it is that is praying. We know that in some traditions, they pray to the saints, pray to the apostles, you pray to Mother Mary. Why is that? Because seemingly in that tradition, they think that they have better acceptance with God, that God will hear their prayers if they are mediated through these saints or even through Mother Mary than to go to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But what we don't see in this passage is none of them coming and speaking forth of their titles, do they? We don't see Peter saying, I'm Peter, the the great apostle, the cornerstone of the church, the, the rock. We don't see Mary saying, I'm the mother of the Lord Jesus, or I'm half-brother of Jesus. None of that is true. And the same is true today. We never enter into prayer because of our title. We never come as pastor, elder, or deacon, or Sunday school teacher, or women's Bible study leader. Why? Because none of those titles matter in prayer. There's only one title that matters. There's only one identification that matters in prayer, that you're a son and daughter of the king. That's the only one that is needed. And that's the only one by which you will have reception with the Father. And if you are a son, if you are a daughter, then you do have reception with him. The Lord hears your prayers, not because of your own merit, but because of the merits of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we simply gather together, individually, but also corporately, as sons and daughters in prayer. And what a pleasure to be able to do so. You know, when we, we pray in these worship services, it's not just a kind of a perfunctory thing. It's not just kind of one of those Christian worship things that we ought to do. No, we are joining together before the throne before our God, before our Father, to pray. Enter into the throne room, heaven itself. The same goes for for Wednesday night. What a, a blessing it is. What a blessing it is to hear the prayers of the saints because they are precious. I tell you, next to the preaching of God's word, there is nothing more 
faith-building and spirit-enriching that you can engage in, and to engage in the corporate prayer time of the church. If you haven't done so, just come and see. You don't even have to pray out loud. Just pray along. I promise you, you will be blessed by it. This period of waiting so that the church would be reminded of the priority of prayer and the need and dependency that we have upon God and upon the Holy Spirit. Well, third, we see waiting and replacing. It says in verse 15 that Peter stood up among the brethren and spoke forth this word that we see beginning in verse 16, that Peter is the leader of the apostles. Again, not greater, not more powerful, not the pope, but rather the first among equals. He tells the 120 that Scripture needed to be fulfilled concerning Judas. And you might read this and think, Peter, are you, you sure? Let's, Judas? Let's not, let's not really talk about him. Let's, let's, let's hush about that. That's kind of an embarrassing part of the, the story, isn't it? Isn't that something that we, we want to keep hidden? You know, if we're trying to build this thing, shouldn't we just kind of build upon those that are on our side, that are on our team? Let's not talk about one that defected to the other team. This here is one of the 12 chosen by Jesus, and yet he was a betrayer. He was a Benedict Arnold before Benedict Arnold. And that seems to be a blemish, a disgrace upon Jesus and the, the rest of the, the 12. But Peter clearly says and indicates that this is not an accident. In fact, verse 16, he says that the Scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Jesus. If you ever doubted if the apostles believed in the inspiration of Scripture, well, here's your answer. The Holy Spirit spoke through the Scriptures, through specifically here, David. This was part of the prophecies, and Jesus was to betray, be betrayed by Judas. And he quotes there Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And yet, this isn't one of the more glorious Old Testament prophecies, is it? Rather sad and tragic one. Necessary, yes, but nevertheless, terrible. In Luke's description there, that parenthetic uh, statement in verse 18 is, is not for the faint of heart, is it? We see what happened to Judas at the very end of his life, that he hanged himself. And it, it's a demonstration of, of one of the greatest proofs, I think, of the depravity of man. Now, here was this man that walked with Jesus, was with him, the entirety of Jesus' ministry. He experienced all the teachings, all the miracles. He ate with Jesus and the disciples and slept in the same camp with them. He was a covenant kid. He received the sign of the covenant. He literally spent every hour with Jesus. Peter says in his description here that he was numbered among us. He was allotted in the states and, and in the share of this ministry. And yet, what do we know about Judas? 
He was unconverted. He never had a heart changed. And sadly and tragically, he believed that it was by his own blood, his own death, rather than the death of Jesus, the the blood of Christ, that would atone his sins, be the remedy of his guilt. We know that our blood, our death, cannot atone or remedy any of those things. It's only by Christ. Many often say, well, if I just saw Jesus face to face, then then I too would believe. The reality is, no, you wouldn't. Not unless the Holy Spirit changes your sinful heart. Unless the power is given to you for the scales to fall off of your eyes, you will remain unbelieving. What's the proof of that? The proof is Judas himself. And sadly, many others I saw Jesus, but there is surely none greater, none more tragically that fell than the fall of Judas himself. Why? Well, we know he was a son of perdition. He was a son of hell. He never repented. He never believed. He never applied the, the message and the teaching of Jesus to himself. It was always for someone else. And as a result, he was destined for for doom. He was a reprobate. And in the day of judgment, he surely will be judged. But he won't be able to use that as an excuse. And if you are unbelieving this day, the same is true for you, my friend. You cannot say, well, I guess I just wasn't one of the elect. I had no choice in the matter. No, that is the eternal things of God that we know not, but what we do know is this, that we are to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do, you shall be saved. That today is the the day of salvation, and so waste no more time. Be hard-hearted no more. Repent and believe and apply the message of the Scriptures, the, the reading and preaching of God's Word to your heart and your mind today. This message is not primarily for others. It's primarily for you. And I say that to each and every one of us. This message is as much for me as it is for you. I must preach to myself as much as I must preach to you. I must apply this to my heart as much as this word must be applied to you. Even if I was the only sinner, I need this word just as much as you need this word. This word is for us. Don't ever think it's for others. It is only for others as much as it is for us first. This passage, amidst the the tragedy of it, also demonstrates something that the apostles were were also engaged in. They were engaged in prayers we talked about, but they were were diving into God's word. These passages from from Psalm 69 and and 1 and 9 is, is not just something that just lays on the surface of of those scriptures. No, they were devoted to prayer and to the study of God's word. That is what they were doing as they were waiting. They were searching the scriptures to see what these things were and that these things were true. And that is why, this will be the first time I say this, but I guarantee it won't be the last. In fact, you'll probably tire of me saying it as we work our way through the book of Acts. What is it that the apostles gave themselves to throughout their ministry, word 
and prayer. Word and prayer. Word and prayer. So often I, I hear that we need to return to the practice of the early church, and I always say, amen. We need to return to word and prayer. Although that's not oftentimes what people usually mean when they say that we need to return to the practice of the early church. And so when people ask, what is Smyrna Presbyterian Church? What is it like? What is it about? You can just simply say, it's about word and prayer. That's what we need to be about. When people say, well, that, that doesn't sound very exciting, say, well, I don't know, the book of Acts seems to be pretty exciting. Maybe we should give ourselves a little more to it. Maybe we should give it a try. Peter goes on here to, to lay out the criteria of the one who is to replace Judas. Verse 21 and verse 22. One that had to be with Jesus, that went in and out among us from the baptism of John all the way until he was ascended just days before. One of these men, Peter says, must become with us a witness to his resurrection. As I mentioned last week, that it's specific, very specific criteria for the one that must replace Judas. And it's so that the early church, it's so that the church in general would be established on historic reality, upon facts, on those that would be witnesses of it. And you might think, well, why did they have to replace Judas? They still had a 11. Why did they need to replace him? Why did they need 12? Well, this is where the number is very specific. Unlike the 120, some try to speculate, why was it there, there was 120 that day? I think there was 120 that day because there was 120 that day. But there needed to be 12. Why? Because Jesus said, to the disciples back in Luke 22, I signed to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Just as there was 12 tribes coming from the sons of Jacob, so there are to be 12 apostles. Just as I said last week, Israel was a, a model of the the greater and more glorious kingdom. So we see it here that the, the 12 would not be the foundation just of the kingdom of Israel. No, they would be the foundation of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. That is made abundantly clear. If we missed it in Revelation chapter 21, where it describes the, the new Jerusalem, it comes down from heaven and it says that the walls of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So we see that they were given a very special place in the church. And so can we put away this idea that there are apostles today? I know that there are those that call themselves apostles, but that was for a special time. This office was for a special place. It had to meet very special criteria. Just like we don't have the office of, of prophet and priest and of king, so we do not have the office of apostle today. Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. You don't lay a foundation and then lay another foundation and then lay a third foundation, do you? One foundation is needed. Only one foundation is necessary. What even further emphasized this fact is that it's Jesus that had to choose the apostle. And so 
two here. Did you notice that? Because the apostles didn't choose the apostle to replace Judas. The people didn't even approve of the person that needed to replace Judas. Jesus had to replace Judas himself. And so two candidates were put forth based on this criteria. And how was it that Matthias was chosen? Well, we see it there in verse 24. They first and foremost prayed and said, Lord, you who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship. And then what do they do? Verse 26, they cast lots. And that's significant. Nowhere else in the church do we see this choosing through this method, that of casting lots. We don't, don't see it in how Paul tells us how we're to, to elect elders and elect deacons in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. It's not how the deacons were selected in Acts chapter 6, as we'll see. We'll see that this was special to how an apostle needed to be chosen. They needed to be selected directly by Christ. We'll see this again with the selection of Paul as an apostle, as he has a a face-to-face encounter with Jesus, and Jesus calls him out to be an apostle. Again, we see that the office of apostleship was unique. It was different. There was a power and a privilege that was given to them that is not normative for the church today. It was special in that way. But maybe you say this morning, well, okay. Why all the, the hubbub, Joel? Why can't we just get to Pentecost? Why can't we just get to Acts chapter 2? Yes, I, I see what was done. Yay, great. Matthias was chosen. We never hear about Matthias again in Scripture. What's the point? Stop stalling. Let's get to the good stuff. I admit that doesn't seem exciting. It's essentially establishing church governance. And church governance is seemingly as exciting as watching paint dry for apps. But it's needed. It is needed. Too often we see the train wreck of churches that just blow by this commandment. They have no structure, no governance. No accountability from the the leaders all the way down to the members. And what is often told is, well, we we don't need that. And you know what? They're right. You don't need it until you do need it. But you never know when you will need it. Kind of like car insurance. Car insurance is the biggest waste of money until you have a crash then you're very glad, and it's very important that you do have it. And it's in the same way that we need church governance, and I would even say we need denominations. Yes, denominations. And you will say, well, I don't want to be encumbered by that. I just want to minister. I just want to do the work of Jesus. Well, we see, at least in this passage, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus thought it important enough before ministry began to establish a structure. But you need the trellis before the vine grows. Otherwise, the fruit will hang and be trampled in the dirt. 
And I think we have countless examples of fruits being trampled in the dirt because of no governance, no accountability, no structure. And so praise God, this is probably the first time you've ever heard this from a church. Praise God for pesky polity and even dull denominationalism. When it's structured and governed as God intended it to be, we're naive to think that we don't need it. No, I need it. You need it. Jesus says that we need it. It's worthy of waiting and holding back the Spirit. Yes, Pentecost was coming, but this needed to be established first. Well, let me conclude with this as we go to the table. God, by His grace, does amazing things, even miraculous things. We we will see it in the book of Acts, and we'll see it at times in our life, and we're, we praise God for those, those special outpourings of, of God's work. But let's never forget that God also equally works as much in the mundane of life. Yes, we, we love the pinnacles. We, we love the mountaintops, but he's also the Lord of the valleys and of the dark days. So if you, my friend, are experiencing glorious days, of glee or grim days of grit and perseverance. Carry on. Carry on, my friend, with the strength and the spirit that is given to you. He is the Lord of the weight as much as the Lord of the awakening. So let us continue to watch and to pray and do so in the bond of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. And let us see what God may do in our very midst.